adolescence is a season maybe more than any other, when suddenly this question just kind of thrusts itself in front of us. We do this work throughout our lives, but it's sort of like, I'm in my 40s, and that identity question, it, it kind of sits on the back burner, maybe on a low simmer, and every now and then there's something that happens that kind of raises the heat, you know? It, it makes me question something about myself. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendorf, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Brad Griffin. He is the Senior Director of Content for Fuller Youth Institute. He has written many books, including Growing Young and Faith in an Anxious World. Brad also serves as the pastor of Youth and Family Ministries uh, at a church in California. Brad, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Andy. So I guess uh, the most important thing is, how are things going in Southern California today? Yeah, it's a... um... So my kids start school tomorrow, actually. So that's a loaded question. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're in an interesting season where it's, um, uh, we, we felt like we'd be way past COVID by now and we're not quite. And we're kind of flexing between um, what to do and how to do it and and I think that uncertainty still is kind of hanging in the air, despite, you know, summer, uh, the feeling of summer and, and the openness of this summer 
has been really on a lot of levels um, freeing, especially for young people. Um, but I feel like we're back in a weird place, like a like an in between place again. You know, one of the things I love um, about um, the folks at, at Fuller Youth Institute is you are active uh, practitioners of the work of youth ministry. So you're not just sitting in an academic office thinking about this stuff, but you're actually out there figuring it out like like the rest of us. So I, I wonder, how has your work changed as a result of the longevity of this pandemic? We have pivoted a number of times <laughs> during this, you know, past year and a half. And up front, we were really, I mean, like a lot of folks, we were kind of focused on on triage, you know, it was, how do we need to respond to these needs right now? And, and there was a lot to respond to right away. You know, I, we reflect back now on, and with my teenagers reflecting back on the way in those first days and weeks, everything felt so intense and overwhelming and scary. And, um, you know, we know now from data that calls to mental health hotlines, suicide hotlines, they were up something like 40%. Um, for calls from young people in the first few months of the pandemic. Those, you know, so, so responding on the mental health front was felt pretty important. Um, at, at FYI, we tried to, to really push out some free resources around responding to anxiety and mental health concerns. Um, um, you know, on the church front, we were just trying to pivot so much. And so, so we also, you know, at FYI, tried to get on the phone with folks and learn what are you doing? How are you changing? Um, so those first few months felt like just kind of quick response. And, you know, to your question about just longevity, I, I do feel like there's been this constant um, ebb and flow. And a realization that the pandemic has been different in different parts of the country. Um, you know, for some folks in ministry, the um, the political and social environment has been really intense and heated, and you know that has impacted um, a lot of their own response. For others, it's been more grappling with um, um, with rising awareness of racial injustice and the, that layer um, you know of conversation with others it has felt pretty um, pretty open you know or there have been times when maybe covid realities have hit their community hard and other times when it has felt really normal and not not uncertain um, you know here locally in Southern California, we were we were pretty much on some version of lockdown for more than a year. Um, you know, it was mid June before a lot of things opened up, and um, uh, and then recently, because of the Delta variant rise, we've gone back to wearing masks indoors, for example. Um, 
So that pervasive sense of uncertainty has still been around here pretty, yeah, pretty pervasively. <laughs> um, so I think the agility, you know, that leaders need this year has been more and more evident. Um, we've, we've talked a lot this year at FYI about the need for innovation and thinking on our feet and just how much leaders have to continually adapt on the fly. Um, as we head back into a school year and a ministry year, we're really hoping leaders will think about the way that this can be an opportunity for something new, an opportunity for not just back to normal, but you know, thinking beyond back to normal, thinking about what new normal looks like, um, taking the opportunity to try something different. Um, I, I don't know about you, but around here, we just, we want to get back to the way things were. And it's tempting to lean into that. But this is such an incredible opportunity to say, you know what, there were some things about the way things were that maybe we don't need to go back to. Maybe we need to to pivot a little bit. Maybe we need to reimagine what what ministry looks like moving forward. Um, so I, those are some of the things that come to mind, both on the just personal you know ministry level as well as thinking broadly about our work at FYI and the kinds of conversations we've been having this year. So what, what are some of the most uh, effective ways you've ministered to youth and families throughout this pandemic? Well, first of all, it's been hard. <laughs> and to acknowledge up front. So I, Andy, last week I was sitting around a circle with, with leaders in our youth ministry at church. Um, and one of the things we acknowledged looking back on this year and a half is that we we struggle with this sense that we have failed our students despite our best attempts. Um, we worked hard and we tried a lot of different things, but it felt like there was a lot of failure in there. Um, it felt now again, this is our own sense, right? Of we just wish we could have done more. <laughs> we wish we could have figured it out. I, I think I hear this a lot from leaders and we feel this ourselves. Um, I, I feel it myself that we tried a lot of things and it felt a lot of times like we were coming up short. Um, now, I think where I think where we were most successful, and I hear this a lot from other leaders, is um, in the, it's in the small, in the seemingly, um, you know, in the, in the very personal and, and maybe seemingly insignificant or unimportant connections, the, the texts, the, you know, um, um, the one-on-ones with students, the small group environments, really working on connection and creating some spaces for listening. Um, you know, I got to say, I, part of the reason of that we felt, I think, like failure is that we really just didn't see students in person very much in our own context. Um, and so we kept trying things, you know, we kept we kept trying different ways of connecting, um, different ways of engaging. And, and I think it just was hard. And, and I hear that experience echoed a lot that it's, it's hard to substitute 
being together in person. And I think we kept looking for a good substitute and it just, um, it just continued to be hard. You have a, a new book out with friend of the podcast, uh, Kara Powell. Uh, the book is Three Big Questions That Changes Every Teenager. You wrote, every teenager is walking bundle of questions. Sometimes kids' questions leak out and muttered aloud. More commonly, they remain bottled inside as teenagers' curious mind and conflicted soul. Either way, we will never activate this generation if we don't understand the most pressing questions. Walk us through what inspired you and Kara to write this. Mm -hmm. You know, we at Fuller Youth Institute have been studying young people for uh, a decade and a half. We have been asking questions of leaders, of churches, of parents, of students themselves. Um, we started out studying what happens to high school students once they leave youth group, that question of, you know, why do about half of them walk away from God and the church in that season after high school and what can we do about it? And that was the genesis of our sticky faith work, um, which, which came out about 10 years ago now. And the more we studied, the more we worked with churches, the more we learned that you know, that that idea of faith longevity is about so much more than youth group. It's about families. It's about the whole church. Then we started church, studying churches more and we wanted to address this question around why um, do some churches engage young people in their teens and 20s really well and 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 others don't? Why are some churches aging and shrinking while others seem to be growing or growing young, which was um, the, the name of that project and there was this there was a seed in that research that was about churches empathizing with young people that churches who really see and and make an effort to get close to young people and understand their journeys um, and and we wanted to dig into that a little bit more and so this project grew out of that learning and we realized that a lot of the way we talk about young people is based on research on millennials and there was so much anguish over millennials and millennials leaving the church and, and on and on but you know millennials are turning 40 and the youngest millennials are you know in their in their mid to upper 20s and we realized that there just wasn't a lot out there especially especially in the church um, and in the ministry world that really focused on gen z that really focused on understanding the teenagers in front of us today. And so we wanted to take a fresh look at this generation and really listen to them. Um, and I'll say too, Andy, you know, we were convicted. We do a lot of survey-based research and we do a lot of research listening um, to leaders, you know, listening to adults, but we wanted to just, we, we felt compelled to take time to sit and listen to teenagers themselves. And that really was the genesis of this. We wanted to understand more about these three questions specifically, which we can get into in a little bit. But, but the way that we did that, um, the heart of it was sitting with 27 teenagers from across the country in three sessions with each student up to two hours each. 
So we ended up spending over a hundred hours just listening, our research team, just listening to teenagers, listening to them talk about their lives, talk about their faith. Uh, it, it was probably the most direct listening we've ever done because we wanted to hear them on their own terms. You know, as, as much as things change, they really do stay the same. Um, but I'll dare to say that being a teenager today is way more difficult than when I was a teenager and, and certainly when my parents were teenagers. And, and I'm sure I will hear something about the latter part of that statement from my parents if they listen to this conversation. But, <laughs> you know, what were the pressing questions when you were a teenager? Hmm. You know, as we reflect on our own journey, we, we see a lot of the echoes of these questions in our own journeys and um so for me i feel like the question of belonging was one of um it it really was a leading question for me um and it's that question of where do i fit you know do i do i really fit or do i just fit in and, and there's a world of difference there do I really belong here with these people? And I always felt like I was a little bit on the outside of groups, uh, even when I was sort of in. And I think that that is a pretty common experience with today. So in some ways, these questions have been you know, pretty similar. Um, in other ways, I think the questions have shifted or intensified. And so to take the, the big question of purpose, what difference can I make? I think I know that I was wrestling with and my cohort was wrestling with that question in particular, you know, in the older teenage years, we all wonder, well, well how do I matter? You know, how, how will my life matter and make a difference in the world? Why am I here? Those are all th those are that's a pretty common question. But I think when I was younger, there was a different type of pressure to answer that question than today's teenagers feel. Uh, I think they feel more pressure, more anxiety. They certainly, you know, because of parenting styles in the US in particular have changed in a way that that adds more pressure by and large, um, that adds more pressure to young people. And I think we do this in the church as well. There's pressure around like finding God's will and doing what God wants me to do. We heard, we heard that from teenagers and, and I remember feeling that. I, I don't know if that, if that pressure is any different or not, but, but there's this sort of Christian layer around vocation that is, um, it actually can end up striking more fear and anxiety. Uh, in young people. So I think this generation is more anxious on the whole. And that's been well documented, actually, um, the rising levels of anxiety, or at least the ways that that young people talk about it and report it. Um, and I think that we can even add spiritual layers to that anxiety as well. Um, but I think those questions are there. So I talked about two of the three. So so where do I fit that question of belonging and what difference can I make the question of purpose? 
And then the the first question, actually, so going kind of in reverse, is the question of identity. Who am I? Who am I? And you know, again, to kind of jump back to my journey, I this was really tied to belonging for me. Actually, the question of identity was also tied to where I belonged. Um, that I would change myself and you know, this is pretty common too in the teenage years to change some of who you are in order to fit in to the people around you. And I, um, I found myself wrestling with that as a lot of, a lot as a teenager. And I hear, um, I hear that in the young people that we talk about, that we talk with today as well. So I think the good news is that we can tap in to empathy, we can tap into our own journeys as a way to empathize with today's teenagers, while also recognizing that their journey is in a lot of ways, as you said, it's a lot different than ours. So there's there's similarity uh, in the pursuit of the questions. The big difference is that they're growing up in a very different environment, a very different world than we grew up in. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. The Institute for Black Church Studies at BSK launched in August. The launch of the Institute brings leadership to Louisville, Kentucky's Festival of Faiths, an interfaith event that seeks to bring attention to certain issues or topics. This event will be held in Louisville, November 18th through the 20th. This year's theme is the Sacred Change, Central Conversations on Faith and Race. Dr. Lewis Brogdon, the Executive Director of the Institute of Black Church Studies at BSK, is leading this event, and BSK will be among the featured organizations. Specifically, BSK will host a session titled Black Faith's Encounters with Black Trauma, Pain, and Nihilism. Learn more on how you can participate at institute.bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So let's dig into these questions a little bit deeper, starting with uh, who am I? Uh, you wrote, being yourself is tricky because young people are rarely the sole source of their identities. The four current answers for identity are, I am what others expect. I am not fill in the blank enough. I am my image and I am more than a label. Why is this such a critical question? Adolescence is a season maybe more than any other, when suddenly this question um, just kind of thrusts itself in front of us. We do this work throughout our lives, but it's sort of like I'm in my 40s and that identity question 
it, it kind of sits on the back burner, maybe on a low simmer. And every now and then there's something that happens that kind of raises the heat. You know, it, it makes me question something about myself. Um, but for the most part, it's a back burner question at this point in my life. For teenagers, it's like suddenly, you know, they, they're coming out of childhood and, and they're in this in-between phase. And suddenly that is a front burner, rolling boil kind of question. Um, it, it's in front of them every day in so many ways. And, it, you know, you mentioned the part about how much, how much we depend on others to help us answer that question. That is so true. And we heard so much about, about others' expectations, having to live up to what my family wants me to be or who they expect me to be. My friends, my friends at school, my friends at church, um, you know, my coaches, my teachers, the list goes on and on. And that those layers of expectation end up putting a particular kind of pressure on the identity journey of young people. And so I, we, we heard from one, um, uh, one young woman, she said, I just, I really, really, really cared about what other people thought about me. <laughs> and I really wanted to have the right friends and do the right things. I was whatever I wanted to be for you and for you and for you. I didn't have any stability. And that, that identity instability is a key feature of adolescence. And, uh, and coupled with that is this sense of I'm not enough. I'm not um, smart enough, thin enough, you know, pretty enough. I'm not good enough at this sport or, or whatever it is that I'm, that I'm doing. Um, for uh, ethnic young people in particular, I'm not black enough for this person or for that group. You know, I'm not Asian enough for my parents. Um, there are just layers and layers of this sense of not being enough. And, and, and young people hold that and walk with it. And it, for some, it really torments them. What, what's our biblical framework for understanding identity? Yeah, as we dug into this, I mean, we went first to Genesis and God's affirmation that we are made in God's image, we're God's beloved children, and how much Jesus reinforces this. And this sense of, I mean, what we landed on is, we think one of the most important theological messages for young people is to know that they are enough. And I want to say off the bat, I know that can sound a little bit like you know, like self-help or pop psychology, um, but it is a deeply theological message that the world talks about scarcity. The world talks about how we are, we don't measure up and Jesus offers us something different and, and actually invites us into abundance and into just being enough that because of Jesus, we don't need to prove that we're worth anything. <laughs> um, our, our worth has been determined. Um, and so, you know, both because we were the image of God and because through Christ, we can be made whole. 
we can keep reaffirming for young people, hey, you're enough. You're enough. And, and that is a, I think, a, a promise of God, um, an affirmation that we can lean into that actually strips some of that pressure away for kids to feel like they have to be, that they have to be perfect, that they, that they have to perform perfectly. There's a tremendous tension in our culture and churches now over the question of identity. Uh, the plurality of identity expressions is greater now than ever before. And, and as a result, many, especially those that don't uh, adopt well to change, don't understand and fear many of the nuanced expressions of identity. So, so talk to us about what's at the heart of this tension, as well as how families and churches can create safe spaces to work through these tensions? You know, two of the words that we use to describe this generation, so, so in addition to anxious, which I mentioned, um, are the words adaptive and diverse. And something that's, I think this is really particularly um, elevated in this generation that they they need to be adaptive they have to adjust with with creativity and agility to what's in front of them um, they've been thrown so much you know this is a digital generation they have access to so many different perspectives and ideas and ways of seeing the world um, and, and they have to constantly adapt to technology as it changes uh, this last year and a half has been a practice of constant adaptation. Um, and then diverse is the other adjective. And, and this generation is diverse in ways that those of us who are adults haven't experienced. Um, their ethnicity, culture, socioeconomics, gender identity, values, worldview, you, you know, they're just, they're inundated with diverse people and perspectives. And there's a lot that is, um, that's really beautiful about that. There's a lot that's challenging about it for adults who many of us grew up in, in a different era. And depending on the age of the adult, you know, maybe a very different era. Um, but even, you know, just millennials relating to Gen, Gen Z, the, the diversity is so much different. And so, I think for leaders and, and parents and those who are trying to relate to teenagers to understand that they they really are seeing the world through different lenses. Um, they are adapting on the fly to the only world that they know, and it is a very diverse world. And it's a world in which, you know, views and attitudes are, are changing really rapidly, um, that there is is a lot more openness that's expected of this generation towards difference. And um, I think there's something there that we can really lean into as adults. Uh, you know, we, I, I don't know, especially Christian culture and, and evangelical subculture, there's been so much emphasis on uncertainty and on you know, really specific ways of understanding everything and, and kind of neatly defining God and, and neatly defining the human experience. And I think one of the beautiful things about this generation is I think they're going to welcome us more into mystery. 
Um, they're going to welcome us more into, I think they're pushing on us to step into openness, um, into empathy and understanding. And, and I would say we need to set some of our assumptions and our judgment aside and really push ourselves towards empathy, towards listening, towards trying to understand the real young person in front of us and their journey and recognizing that that they probably see and process the world differently than we do. And that's not necessarily bad just because it's different. And, and I don't know, as an adult, I find that that's a, it's like a discipline, it's a practice that, that I have to put on. Um, and that's true with my own, my own kids, the teenagers who live in my house. Where do I fit seems to be a, a universal human experience. You wrote, belonging is our connection with others. It's how we feel like we fit in with groups. We might say we belong when we're with those who really know, understand, and accept us for who we are. This does come back to the premise of giving people the space to figure out who they are. But, but what are some of the common um, missteps by families and churches in giving teenagers the space to fit in or, or to belong? I mentioned assumptions and judgment a little bit ago, and I think that very much applies here. Young people feel like they don't belong at church when they feel judged at church. When they feel like there's not enough space for them to come as they are, to be themselves. One of the things we learned is that safety, and a lot of the, a lot of the research out there affirms this, how important safety is for belonging. It's like, it's like a prerequisite for belonging is feeling safe and, and safe on a number of levels. But the way that we heard it from teenagers was, you know, I fit or I feel like I belong when I feel safe to be me, when I'm comfortable enough to be myself. Uh, again, this connection between identity and belonging. When I'm with people who accept me and don't judge me, I can I don't have to be fake. And I think churches can create environments. I mean, we're well known for creating environments where people have to be fake in order to belong. <laughs> and I don't think we're past that. You know, in, in most churches, I don't think we're past that era of I don't think we've I don't think we've broken out of this kind of push to be fake to put on a particular kind of um, of self at church and so i think again i think that shows up in in snap judgments um in assumptions assumptions keep us at a distance and they really kind of push that generation gap even farther and farther apart um you know and i'll use one example Andy, so it's not uncommon as an adult, in particular, if you're a couple of generations older than uh, than a teenager, to to use the phrase "when I was your age." You know, well, when I was your age, and you know, maybe we're kind of doing it in fun. Maybe it's it's a way to to try to compare or relate, or you know. But honestly, if you think about it, when you use that phrase, it rarely precedes an empathetic response. 
it usually comes before something that sounds kind of judgmental. Um, it sounds, it, it feels distancing. And I think instead of that kind of response that when, when adults in churches in particular see something that we don't understand, we don't, we can't quite relate to, that instead we ask a question like, tell me more, tell me more about that. You know, help me understand that. Or, well, what's that like today? What's it like for, what's it like for you all today to go through this or that? You know, what, well, what is that like for you to experience this? And I think that can open up not only a sense of, of more understanding, but that actually opens the pathway for belonging. I think, I think empathy and belonging are very connected because judgment and um, and lack of belonging are very connected. I think when we're all young, we want the world to change um, so much for the better, and we expect it to change, and we celebrate when it changes. But but something happens when we get older. It, it's like a, a switch flips, and we don't understand why the generation younger than us is so passionate about you know fill in the blank. Why do you, why do you think so many of us lose that drive and that desire for positive change as we get older. For some of us, we get tired. I think for others, maybe we get a little disillusioned or cynical. I, I think maybe especially in our environment today, it's easy to get cynical. And I think a lot of us just get stuck. You know, we maybe we start out as idealists, have big dreams for for the world, for our life, and we get kind of stuck in the everyday. Um, certainly, some of that is about is about survival. There's very much, um, you know, there's a lot that's connected to that around socioeconomics and 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 race and and just social location that can keep us from from really having the the bandwidth, you know, or the opportunity to make a difference. But I think it can just be easy for us to sort of get get stuck in a rut and and lose some of that, that fire um, that often young people have to to change the world. Now, I got to say, I don't know how much you believe in the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram one, um, which my interpretation of that is I'm constantly out to try to save the world. So, <laughs> so for better or worse, there's a part of me that almost can't help trying to reform, to make things better, to push back, to say, you know, we have to change. Um, but, but I'm definitely not even as, um, you know, as, as radical or as energizer, maybe have enough energy and space in my life as I did when I was younger and, and young people are so inspiring on this front. Uh, we see the ways that young people want to make a difference. I do think it's even more pronounced in this generation that is seeing a resurgence in, uh, in justice movements, a resurgence in ways that, that we call out what's wrong and what needs to change. Young people are often on the front lines of of those movements for change. And I think some of that is 
is naturally about young people. And I think some of that is maybe even elevated in this generation. Let's take this a little further. This, this tension exists within many churches. This is the reason that so many young people, especially those that go off to college and then become adults, are leaving the church and, and not coming back. They don't see the church making um, important or progressive change in our world, not to let that term, you know, kind of uh, sidetrack the conversation. But mm -hmm. how do congregations recognize and embrace the desire for change as an intergenerational pursuit? Mm. I think this is a challenge for a lot of congregations. What that brings to mind for me is a, a conversation I was having with a, um, a pastor who, a youth pastor in a predominantly black church. And he was talking about how there's a generational divide in his church around how to respond to racism and to some of the current conversations around racial injustice. And he said, you know, the older generations in our church, they're, they're from the civil rights generation. And there was a particular way of doing this. There was a particular way of responding. And they don't, they kind of rub up against the younger generation's ways of responding and the types of protesting, you know, and the types of um, activism that are really you know, energized and led by the younger people. And so it was so interesting because, you know, his, his church agreed across generations about, for the most part, about racial injustice, but they disagreed about how to address it. And the way that he was trying to open that up was through relationship, through listening through creating some spaces for generations to hear and understand each other and 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 find their common ground um, or even if they agree to disagree to create more understanding and empathy i would say this is resonant with our research on congregations broadly that there is so much power in generations coming together to serve and to seek justice to you know make the world right to to be the best neighbors that we can be in the world um because of the good news of, of jesus christ it it takes a lot of intentional work for churches to get there and and it takes building those bridges across generations and finding often it's finding small wins it's finding things that we can that we can agree on as starting points um because we need that we need more proximity in order to start building that empathy and understanding and so sometimes the first step is just creating more proximity in churches between generations that if we can get close to each other in some way um, we can build some understanding and then we can work together towards change i gotta say coming out of this past year and a half Proximity has been harder than ever. It, it has been more challenging than it's ever been 
to create intergenerational connections, relationship, understanding. Uh, in our own church, we have um, we have a mentoring. Um, I I use the term program pretty loosely, but we do have a structure in place for pairing students with mentors from another generation. And this past year, that's been really challenging. Uh, it's been challenging because when you're meeting over Zoom or FaceTime, but both the adult and the student have been have spent their day on video calls. <laughs> Yeah, it, it wasn't really very appealing to try to connect that way. Um, and, you know, sometimes there we could meet outside or in person or go for a hike. I mean, you know, those were kind of the best sort of moments. But that was, um, I, I think, overall, that proximity in most churches just became less and less. So I think heading back into this year, there's a new generational divide that we've we've got to kind of face head on in a lot of our churches. Finally, uh, who do you imagine reading this and what do you hope they will do with it? Kara and I, we wrote this book for any adult who cares about a teenager and wants to take a next step with them. For any adult who wants to have better conversations, create better connections. We especially had ministry leaders in mind. We especially had you know, youth ministry leaders in mind because those are the folks who spend the most time thinking about, caring about, you know, spending time with teenagers. Um, we also had parents and family members in mind. We had mentors in mind. I, we get asked a lot, in our work with churches, you know, hey, is there a resource that we could just give every adult in our church who wants to understand teenagers? And we don't usually have a great answer to that question. We wrote this book in part to help answer, to have an answer to that question. So that when a church says, all right, well, our leadership team, you know, we're, we sort of, we're, we understand maybe we're rowing in the, in the same direction. Um, maybe they've been, engaged with content around growing young or, you know, some other content that has kind of got them going in the right direction and caring about young people. But they say, we just, our adults just really don't understand teenagers. I would want to put this book in, in those adults' hands. Any adult who cares, who wants to go deeper, this book is for that person. The book is three big questions that change every teenagers. You can stay connected with Brad by checking out his work at fulleryouthinstitute.org and follow him on social media. Brad, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for the reminder that we should never lose the sense of curiosity and growth that comes with asking critical questions. Amen to that. Thank you, Andy, for a great conversation. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree. 
the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.